Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Friday, August the 4th, and I continue my series of podcasts with U.S. tax lawyer, in my opinion, one of the world's most famous tax lawyers, Virginia Latora Jaker, who has written a fabulous blog post on the net investment income tax. And this is a topic that is of interest to everybody, but most interestingly, I think especially to Americans abroad, subject to the U.S. tax system. Welcome, Virginia. How are you today? Hey, John. I'm doing great. I hope you are as well. I am. I am. Well, why don't we start off with this? Would you agree with my comment that this is of particular interest and impact when it comes to Americans abroad. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely, because there are so many nuances that hit the American who is living abroad um, with regard to his employment income earned overseas, if he's owning certain foreign corporations. It just gets really, really tough for the U.S. person who's living abroad when the irony, the yeah. irony, of course, is that this net investment income tax was designed to fund Medicare for American residents, right? Yeah, this was enacted to help fund Obamacare. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, Americans overseas, as far as I know, aren't entitled to any of that. Well, I think that's right. So I think that makes a lot of sense from a U.S. point of view. Let's get somebody else to pay for it, right? <laughs> Why it's not? always the way, right? Yeah, citizenship taxation, the only way, the American way. All right, why don't we start with first principles? And if I could just make a comment before we start and ask you to confirm if you think I'm right. But this net investment income tax really needs to be seen, I think, as a separate tax regime with its own rules. And in that sense, it's sort of similar to the alternative minimum tax, right? I think that's correct. Absolutely. Okay. So brand new tax, more change we can believe in, I guess, et cetera. Okay. So how much is this tax anyway? And what, what's it based on? So this is um, a 3.8% surtax on what's called net investment income. And it doesn't apply to everyone. It applies to supposedly only high-income individuals. So whether you are going to be assessed this surcharge will depend on your modified adjusted gross income. And it, it will also matter which filing status you use. So for example, if you're married filing jointly, the MAGI threshold modified adjusted gross income threshold is 250000 Once you hit that number, then you will be subject to the net investment income tax. If you are married filing separately, it's it's half of that, 125000 Okay, now that's very interesting. Let's just pause on that for a moment to make sure people understand the gravity of that. Most Americans abroad, if they're married to a non-citizen, would, I think, presumptively file, married filing separately. Would you agree with that? That is, for the most part, John, I would say that's the default. 
people will file married filing separately because they don't want their foreign spouse to be dragged into the U.S. tax net. Now, having said that, having said that, in certain cases, of course, it can be beneficial to do a married filing jointly return with your foreign spouse. You need to really speak to a, a qualified tax advisor and see if this is going to be beneficial for you or not. Um, for example, if the spouse is working and only earning um, employment income overseas, that spouse will also be entitled to the foreign earned income exclusion. And then in that particular kind of case, it might be beneficial to do married filing jointly and treat the U.S. Spouse, uh, the foreign spouse as a U.S. taxpayer. You have to make a special election. It's, it gets a little bit complicated. But with the proper advice, you can find that this will really save some tax dollars. But when you have the couple, um, when the foreign spouse has a lot of investment assets, for example, then typically, yes, that couple will be doing married filing separately. And I think as you're going to point out, the um, threshold is quite low. That's right. So, I mean, to put this in very, very simple terms, if the threshold for marrying marrying filing separately is one hundred twenty five thousand less, uh, that means that there's there's actually three point eight percent times one hundred twenty five thousand, you know, which is an immediate. Uh, what can I say? Surcharge on married filing separately, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean that's that's. It doesn't sound like anything until you're actually hit with it on paper. Correct. Um, Correct. And the people stateside who are married will not generally choose married filing separately. But the couple living abroad, where one is a U.S. person and the other is not, they will generally, the U.S. person will use that status married filing separately to keep the foreign spouse out of the U.S. tax dragnet. Right. Uh, since since we're talking about this, I think it might be worth making the point. I think I'm right in this, and maybe you can either agree or correct me if I'm wrong. But I believe that once they start with the married filing jointly, uh, you know, with that 6013G election, I believe that remains in effect until they take specific steps to terminate that, right? That's correct. It will automatically terminate. I believe on the death of the spouse and it will automatically terminate. Uh, there's another situation. I can't remember what it is, but there are some situations where you don't have to revoke it if certain things happen. But I think you're right. People should know that that 6013G election, you have to take specific steps to obtain the married filing jointly status when you are involving a non-U.S. spouse. And to end it. And to end it. And to end it. That's right. It continues unless ended for the code, the tax code, or ended because you have specifically revoked it. Right. So, you know, that that is very, very important. Uh, You know, I think, well, on both sides, but, you know, you don't want to start. Once you revoke it, you can't get it back. That too. That too. Yeah, I mean, there's very precise rules on this that people should clearly take proper advice before they make the election and before they revoke it if they made it. 
So, so would you say then that, I mean, let's say somebody calls, calls you Virginia for advice. Would it make sense to make sure that you talk about this in two categories? First, is there any tax benefit to married filing jointly at all? But second, oh, by the way, if you do this, uh, there, there are specific rules for termination and ending, okay, and you need to know about those as well, right? So even if there were a short-term benefit, maybe it's not worth it because of the bureaucracy and the rules for electing it and terminating it. Does that make sense? Yes, and getting it back again once you do terminate yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a bit of a detour there, but very, very important, I think. Okay, now... 3.8% surtax on net investment income. What's invest what's what's investment income, let alone net investment income? What does that apply to? Well, it applies to things that are, for example, passive income like interest or dividends, capital gains, uh, annuities, royalties, passive rents. Um or any other income from businesses that are considered passive with respect to the particular taxpayer. Because okay. as you, you know, in the code, we have passive activities rules. Sure. All okay. of these things are dragged into this net investment income category. Okay. You know, it occurs to me that uh, the sale of principal residence uh would be investment income and, uh, you know, threshold is 125 or 250. It seems to me very, very likely that in the year that somebody sells a house with a capital gain, they're going to be hit with this. Would you agree? They can be. Uh, just to correct you on the numbers, John, it's 250000 as the exclusion of capital gain on the sale of a personal residence. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, that I, yeah, that I understand. I meant in terms of the thresholds for. Aha. Uh -huh. oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. To be clear, yes, uh, that's correct. Anything yeah, to be clear, the first two fifty uh, of mm -hmm. the game would be mm -hmm. excludable, and five hundred thousand for joint right filers. Yeah, so that's interesting again because uh, you know it seems to me that's another issue to help people determine you know are they filing separately or jointly, whatever. But but okay, so. Passive income, net investment income. Uh, now, I noticed in your blog post, and, and by the way, for listeners, we're, we're kind of talking off what I really think is one of Virginia's greatest blog posts ever, uh, is this recent one, July 27th, 2023, that, that's talking about this net investment income tax. Um but what, what you what you kind of hear is that, that it doesn't apply to things like IRAs and, uh, you know, what, 401ks and stuff, right? Correct. So a distribution from a qualified retirement plan, that distribution is not counted um, as, as being, you know, passive net investment income. Um, similarly, if you've got income from a tax-exempt municipal bond, that wouldn't count. And if you look at these exemptions from the surcharge, it, it makes good economic sense. Like Congress does not want to discourage a taxpayer who is investing in his own retirement planning. 
Um, obviously, we know the social security system is having its, its problems. So they want to encourage people to invest in their retirement planning. Um, so they're not gonna hit you when you get a distribution from a qualified plan. And the same for investing in a municipal bond and, and getting interest on that, that won't be included. I mean, debt obligations issued by a state or a city, they use that money for for important, you know, public civic product, uh, projects. So Congress doesn't want to discourage people by having the surcharge apply to that kind of income. Right. You know, we look at the 401k. Um, in Canada and many other countries, in Canada it's called an RRSP. You know, they have similar uh, programs where, you know, you contribute a certain amount to tax deduction and gross tax-free. I've always found it interesting that the distribution from the Canadian RRSP uh, would be tr would be caught under the net investment income tax, whereas the distribution from the 401k would not. Interesting. Well, I mean, again, I, John, I as we have said time and time again, <laughs> anything foreign is always troublesome. That's right. Not, not liked. Let's put it that way. Not liked by the government of the U.S. or the tax authorities of the U.S. For whatever reasons, I don't know. I think they just are not thinking through the repercussions and, and thinking that, gee, the only thing that is worthwhile is a, a 401k or, you know, one of our qualified plans, but no other country's qualified plans are worthwhile. It's really, it's really incredible, isn't it? Because in this conversation, we've identified already, you know, two areas where this really discriminates Americans abroad. First in the tax filing thing, married filing separately, you know, it's a lower threshold before people are subject to the net investment income tax. But, you know, then we see that these qualified, you know, retirement plans in other countries, you know, the distributions are included uh, as being subject to this net investment income tax. And, you know, as we said at the beginning, the whole purpose of this is to fund health care for resident Americans. Yep. Yep. Amazing stuff. Um, you know, it's very, very common for, um, you know, Americans abroad to invest in in mutual funds that are non-U.S. And there's that word PFIC for that, right? Passive Foreign Investment Corporate Company. And, and you know, I think even more, you know, equally common for them to uh, run their business through small business corporations. What happens, uh, you know, if, if you get income from a foreign mutual fund, a PFIC or a a distribution from a, a foreign corporation. Is that net investment income? Oh my goodness, John, that gets very, very complicated. Um, under the surcharge rules, that U.S. shareholder um, can make an election to include the undistributed income from the CFC or the PFIC in his net investment income for the 3.8% a surcharge in the year in which the US shareholder actually pays income tax on that undistributed income. Because these anti-deferral regimes that where foreign corporations can be CFCs, controlled foreign corporations, or PFICs, passive foreign investment companies, 
they make the taxpayer, they make the U.S. shareholder pay tax on income that he has not actually received from the corporation. So it's a deemed income that he is getting. And of course, all of this pretend income is 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 going to be taxed to him on a current basis on his on his form 1040. So we have this bit of a disconnect, like what do we do with the 3.8% surcharge? How do we handle that? And the answer in the in the tax rules was to permit the US shareholder to make an election. He can include the undistributed income in his net investment income for that 3.8% surcharge in the same year in which he pays the US income tax on that undistributed or pretend income. So this allows the shareholder to treat that undistributed income in the same manner. It's a consistency. He treats it as taxable income for both his US income tax purposes and for purposes of the net investment income tax. If the election is not made, then he's got this inconsistency for the different tax years involved. So he's required to pay the 3.8% surcharge in the year he gets the actual distribution from the CFC or the PFIC. But this actual distribution he gets is not included in his regular federal income tax on that year's tax return because it was previously taxed in an earlier tax year under the PFIC or CFC rules. So it can get very messy. Oh my God. Yeah. That is so complicated. I mean, let's just backtrack and just reinforce a few basic points that I think are at the root of that. First of all, reconfirming that the net investment income tax regime or system is a separate system than the normal income tax system, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Secondly, when we talk about CFCs or PFIX, actual distributions, leaving aside deemed actual distributions, are, you know, dividends, for example, or or, or uh, distributions from mutual funds, do qualify as investment income. Period. Correct. That, that's right. But then we go further, and we have the problem that with CFCs and PFIX, sometimes. There's pretend income or deemed income that you never received, right? That's correct. And what you're telling me is that that de deemed income is also net investment income, correct? Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, my God. It's just that the only benefit you get is that maybe you don't have. So even though you have to include the deemed income from an in income tax point of view, you're able to defer it from a net investment income tax point of view, correct? Yes, and until you actually get the money, the distribution. So you actually get it out, but your reward for that is more forms, more complexity, more accounting fees, and more sleepless nights. Agreed? I would agree, yeah. I would agree. Oh, my God, that is amazing stuff. But, you know, surely, Virginia, surely... These these taxes paid uh, to the U.S. Uh, surely they have to be offset by taxes paid to the other country, right? I mean, you can use foreign tax credits to offset the net investment income tax, can't you? Unfortunately, John, you cannot use foreign tax credits to offset the net investment income tax. This. Are you kidding me? 
No, I'm not kidding. Did you say this that, back to what you were emphasizing frequently in this podcast is that the income tax is completely separate from the net investment income tax. They are two separate regimes. And the way the tax code is structured, it, it's very complicated. Um, the prohibition from using the foreign tax credits to offset the net investment income tax is due to the fact that the Internal Revenue Code is structured in a certain way. And it refers to, I don't want to get into the code sections, et cetera, but the way the code is structured prohibits you, let's just put it that way, from using the foreign tax credits to offset um, the net investment income tax. So for Americans, I mean, that's shocking. So for Americans abroad then, isn't this just pure double taxation? Well, unfortunately it is, but I will caveat all of this by saying, if the taxpayer uses the foreign income taxes, that he pays as a deduction on his tax return, as opposed to taking them as a foreign tax credit, then some or all of that deduction can be used to offset the net investment income. So someone in this position is paying you know, foreign tax and using foreign tax credits. Maybe he should be discussing what's the best situation for him with a, an experienced tax advisor, but it gets very complicated. Well, let's take a very simple example there. So let's say that we have uh, $100,000 of, uh, let, let's say we have, a, let's take a bigger number. Let's say we have a million dollars of net investment income uh, over and above the threshold. So, so the first point is so so it's going to be a three point eight percent tax on that, which mm -hmm. is what thirty eight thousand dollars, right? Correct. And that cannot be offset by the what's probably the higher tax paid in the source country. But if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is, well, hold on a minute. Yeah, that's real bad. But let's go to the itemized deduction section of your tax return. And maybe we can use that thirty-eight thousand under the itemized deduction heading. Is that correct? They're taking the foreign income taxes as the deduction, and I think what you're saying is you're saying the thirty-eight thousand—that's the net investment income tax. That so, uh, sorry, the, the sorry, the extra. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The extra amount of foreign tax paid. Yes. Would be then used as a as an itemized deduction, correct? Correct. Okay. And that would reducing your net investment income by by taking the deduction. Okay. That will, that will reduce your net investment income, and then you apply the three point eight percent. So it will lower it. So it has the effect of lowering it to some degree. Yeah lowering it to some degree, whereas a foreign tax credit reduces your taxes dollar for dollar. So if you had $100 of, of foreign tax credit and your income tax owed to the U.S. government was $150, then you use the foreign tax credit to offset your $150 of U.S. tax owed and you end up owing the U.S. government only $50. Right, okay. 
but the deduction doesn't help you that way. It's not dollar for dollar. Sure. Yeah, it just reduces the income, and you know that's that's right. Yeah. Let's just add one thing in, John, that we have missed that's important for people who are living abroad. Um, many people want to know, well, gee, I, I get my $120,000 foreign earned income exclusion. Can I use that to um, compute what my net investment income is? What, you know, doesn't that work and help me? Unfortunately, it does not. They have to add back the amount of the foreign earned income exclusion that they've taken in order to compute this net investment income surcharge. Yeah, another another awful aspect to this. Yep. I mean, you know, certainly discussing this with you today confirms my impression of your blog post that Americans abroad are much more significantly impacted by this than resident Americans. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, John, as you pointed out, they don't realize it until it's on paper. And they yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. There's also no doubt, Virginia, that the that writing this thing in a way to prevent the use of the foreign tax credit to offset it was really just a deliberate attempt to put a 3.8% sure surcharge on investment income earned in other countries. Would you agree? It, it certainly sounds that way. I mean, they, you know, they could have taken this into account. I mean, I, I know it's a technical reason due to the way the code was structured, but a simple sentence could have cured that. Well, I, th I, th I think the fact that it's a technical reason is proof of the intent. Uh, I don't know. There were, uh, you know, this was a very, when did this come in? Was it 2010, 2012? Somewhere around there. There was a lot of discussion on this uh, at that time. And I remember uh, listening. Oh, to okay. If there was a lot of discussion, it wasn't an oversight. <laughs> it was It was not an oversight. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. There you so, go. so a final indignity inflicted on Americans abroad. I mean, it really is amazing. And, you know, just to kind of cap this, um, you know, I presume... They treat foreigners better than the American abroad. Let's put it that way with regard to this. Non-resident so aliens are not uh, subject to this 3.8% net investment income tax. So Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Foreigner-owning investments or properties in the U.S. and earning passive rents or dividends or capital gains, he's never going to pay this net, this net investment income tax. Actually, you know, you make an incredibly important point, and I would like to invite you to explain that a little more fully, maybe with uh, an example and some actual numbers. I mean, I think that's so shocking that America would discriminate against its own citizens in that way. Could you could you explain that? Gosh, John, you know, numbers are not my thing. Um, but well, let's, let's keep it real simple. So yes, we have small apartment buildings beside each other. One's owned by an American citizen. The other owns by a non-resident alien. Okay. They each generate a million dollars of profit. Can you take it from there? So there, this is um, passive rent that they're earning? What, yes, what was passive rent. 
Okay. So the foreign person in the United States uh, investing in that U.S. property, he has to file an income tax return and, and pay tax on, on that rental income. And he'll pay tax, assuming he makes an election to treat it as effectively connected income, he'll pay tax at a maximum of 37% full stop. Now, the American living overseas who has invested in this foreign property and is earning rent, if he earns that million dollars, he is going to pay, after taking his deductions and so forth, he is going to pay tax at the maximum rate of 37%, but then he's got to add on top the 3.8% net investment income tax. So what would the 3.8% yield to him? At the end of the day, he's paying tax at 39.8%. Oh, no, more. Well, he's paying an extra $38,000 since I make yeah. point here, right? So the U.S. guy is treated worse than the foreign person. No question about it. Or to put yeah. it more specifically, the American citizen abroad, right, living outside the United States is treated worse than the non-resident alien. But I mean, you know, this is one more example of, I think, a consistent theme. I would say that's correct. Now, the U.S. government wants to obviously encourage foreigners to make investments into the United States. Okay, so properties, stocks, etc. None of the dividends or capital gains they earn will be subject to this net investment income tax. In fact, capital gains on sales of U.S. stocks aren't even subject to um, U.S. income tax for the typical foreigner abroad. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But but remember what happens when the non-resident alien who's not who's a non-domiciliary dies with property and with that million-dollar property in the United States. What happens then? If he's domiciled, if he's not domiciled, not domiciled, not domiciled. Okay, then he only gets what's equivalent to a sixty-thousand-dollar exemption amount. And he must pay a state tax on the on the amounts above the sixty thousand, which every non U.S. person I know who has invested in the states has significant investments. There's no way this small sixty thousand dollar exemption amount is going to help. Yeah, in other words, but, but there is planning they can do. They can come up with ownership structures to take care of the estate tax exposure. There's there's no doubt about that. Well, again, this is a, really a fabulous blog post. It's, it's an eye opener, and it it talks about you know I just think an indignity inflicted on Americans abroad that is rarely discussed. But uh, you know, this is uh, a particularly egregious example, I think, of the abuse that the U.S. government inflicts on its citizens abroad. Particularly egregious. Yes, it's quite it's quite bad. And let's just end this by saying those U.S. citizens who have had enough and want to expatriate, if they are going to be treated as what we call covered expatriates, meaning they are presumed to have a tax avoidance motive, for example, 
if they have a net worth over $2 million on the date of expatriation, they um, covered expatriate will be hit with this net investment income tax in a harsh way because they will be treated as, as you know, as selling all of their worldwide assets, which results typically in capital gain. And the net investment income tax will be applied on that pretend gain. They haven't sold anything, but the net investment income tax is going to hit them on that deemed gain upon this. So, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. And, you know, and one final point here. Oh, it's unbelievable. In fact, it's so unbelievable that I think most people wouldn't even believe it. But, uh, you know, you make this this point here, and we can probably close on this, that President Biden's Green Book proposals suggest extending the net investment income tax into other forms of income, right? Yes, yes, yes. Certain kind of active business income. Wow. Amazing stuff. Well, this has been great, Virginia, as always. Uh, you know, great, great blog post on a topic that very few people think about or even aware of, probably because of the complexity. And where would people read more of your great blog and get in touch with you and all that good stuff? Right. They can go to my website, and we have many blog post categories, a separate page listing out all the categories. So people who are looking at expatriation, people who have foreign spouses, all of these wonderful topics can be um, looked at on the blog. And they can find me at www.us-tax.org. And funny enough, I've had people ask me, what's a hyphen? Okay, let's do that one again. www.us, little dash, not an underscore, tax.org. So hyphen is just a little dash. All right, that's great. It's a fabulous blog. I've been reading it for years. And all those people out there who are interested in learning more about the U.S. tax system, I think this is a great place to, to start. Okay, well, thank you very much, Virginia. And I look forward to our next podcast. I do too, John. It's always a pleasure. And you always... Give me a new perspective in one way or another whenever we have one of these podcasts. So I thank you for that. Oh, likewise, likewise. These are great, great discussions. All right. Well, till next time. Thank you. Take care, John.